welcome to the Global Governance Perspective, a podcast presented by the Global Governance Institution. I'm retired Captain Andy Tian, the founder and the president of the Global Governance Institution. On December 9th and 10th, the United States President Joe Biden convened a virtual summit for democracy to show the U.S. leadership. Well, which countries were invited reflects American politics more than democratic values. It is no secret that the United States seeks to build a global coalition of democracies to counter China. In addition to state actors, NGOs are not wasting this opportunity to raise their profiles. UK lawyer Sir Geoffrey Nice delivered the Uyghur Tribunal's judgment on December 9th. Is this a mere coincidence or a well-coordinated and concerted effort of the West to disrupt and contain the rights of China under the umbrella of the Summit for Democracy? How much will the big power competition play up for Biden's Summit for Democracy? What do different countries, regions, and NGOs make of the summit? Is Joe Biden's Summit for Democracy all that democratic? To answer all those and other related questions, in collaboration with the CNIA, Center for New Inclusive Asia, a Malaysia-based think tank, the Global Governance Institution holds a virtual international event on democracy, human rights, and big power competition, whereby we invited a great group of serious international scholars to join us for an answer. I divided this event into two episodes. The first episode deals with the geopolitical approach to the summit. The second episode will analyze the legal approach of the summit for democracy by taking Uyghur Tribunal's judgment as an example. Now let's listen to the first part of the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join today's discussion on democracy, human rights, and geopolitics. Uh, basically, we are robbing you of your weekend. Sorry for that. Uh, where the dialogue is co-organized by the Center for New Inclusive Asia in Malaysia uh, and the Global Governance Institution in China. Uh, we are happy to see a strong panel of scholars from Italy, Portugal, Russia, Sri Lanka, Turkey, the US, China, and Malaysia. Uh, I'm Xu Qindo uh, from the Center for New Inclusive, uh, Inclusive Asia, or CNA. Uh, today, I will play the role of moderating discussion. And for the purpose of having a smooth uh, discussion, I would ask you to mute your mic when other speakers uh, do their presentation. And if you have any questions, you may leave your question in the chat section. Uh, so we will try to have the speakers answer your questions afterwards. Uh, today we have two sessions with the first one focusing on uh, geopolitics behind this uh, democracy summit and the other on the case study about human rights in Xinjiang in association with the so-called Uyghur Tribunal uh, from legalistic perspective. Uh, without further ado, uh, let's uh, kick off our discussion. First, I would like to introduce uh, Mr. Ko King Ki, uh, president of the Center for New Inclusive Asia, to give us a welcome address. Uh, Qi, please. Thank you, Qingzhuo. Captain Tian uh, Shichen, President of Global Governance Institution, distinguished speakers, participants, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon and a very warm welcome to all the participants of the dialogue. To the distinguished speakers, 
our sincere thanks to you for taking time to join this dialogue and share your expert views and insights on democracy, human rights, and big power competition. There are three topics for deliberation today, but the key topic to be discussed is democracy. As human right is fundamental to democracy, and as US President Joe Biden sees it, big power competition between US and China is a competition between democracy and autocracy. According to Joe Biden, the US must win in this competition to show that democracy is a better governance system that can deliver. A couple of days ago, on December 9 and 10, Joe Biden convened a virtual summit for democracy to prove that democracy works and to strengthen democracy and counter authoritarianism, fight corruption, and promote respect for human rights. Some critics, however, aptly describe the summit as a summit for virtual democracy, as nothing concrete has come out of it. The definition and interpretation of democracy have long been the monopoly of the West. The word democracy actually comes from the Greek word demos, meaning people, and kratos, meaning power. So democracy can be interpreted as people's power. In Chinese, the term for democracy is mingzhu, meaning the people are masters. The world has long been indoctrinated by the West that democracy means one person, one vote. Periodic election of government is a must to qualify as the democracy. However, the large majority of the people do not hold power in these systems. Elites do. A 2014 study in US showed that only the richest 10% of the population seems to have any causal effect on public policy. The other 90% is left with democracy by coincidence, that is, getting what they want only when, the, when they happen to want the same thing as the people calling the shots. According to Helen Landemore, or author of the book, Open uh, Democracy and uh, Political Theorist in Yale University, representative government historically favor the idea of people's consent to power over that of people's exercise of power. She pointed out that an authentic democracy would center on ordinary citizens rather than elected politicians. Electoral representation is not the only let alone the most democratic form of representation. Democracy must be more deliberate, deliberative and participatory. Then the most interpretation of democracy is strikingly similar to the whole process people's democracy promulgated by President Xi Jinping. During an inspection tour in Shanghai in 2019, President Xi said China's political system is a whole process uh, uh, democracy, it encompasses the idea that China's one-party political system is a unique application of democratic principles, one which empowers the people to get involved in the country's decision-making and governance at all levels, which is more participatory than Western democratic system. 
the whole process people's democracy, as it is now known, is in fact rooted in the people-centered governance principle of the Communist Party of China. China's democracy is people's democracy. People are masters of the country as what democracy is understood in Chinese, that is, Mingzhu. Democracy is a means, not an end. It is a means to bring good life to all citizens. Democracy should not, be, should not exist just in form, but must be substantive. So is human rights. Human rights is about policies and measures which will improve the quality of life and standard of living of the people, not just slogans and empty talks. The priority of human rights concerns should be ensuring that people have enough food to eat, have clean waters, decent housing, healthcare, and education. Human rights is nothing but high-sounding political rhetoric if people have to sleep on the streets, suffer from poverty, hunger, and fall sick without public health care. China's achievements in human rights are manifested in the lifting of 800 million people out of poverty, improving the literacy rate from 20% to 96%, and increasing the life expectancies of its people from 33 years to 77 years during the rule of the Communist Party of China. America has now blatantly weaponized human rights by accusing China of genocide in Xinjiang. This is but a well-planned scheme to destabilize Xinjiang in furtherance of its geopolitical interests and part of America's global strategy to contain China's rapid rise. U.S.-China competition is not a competition between democracy and autocracy, as Joe Biden alleged. It is but a test of which interpretation of democracy is correct, China's or America's. I'm sure history will have an unbiased answer. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jingqi, um, for your uh, speech in which uh, basically put democracy at the center of our argument for the session when we started. So let's uh, dive into our discussion, uh, which should be exciting about the, um, the debates of the ideas. Uh, first, we have uh, Dr. Gail Luft, uh, who is a co-director at the Institute for the Analysis of Global Security, uh, Washington, USA. He's also a professor at Austin Technical University in Turkey. Mr. Luft specializes in geopolitics, geoeconomics, energy security, Middle East and U.S.-China relations. Newsweek magazine called him a tireless and independent advocate of energy security, and Esquire magazine included him in its list of America's best and brightest. So, Dr. Gail Luft, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, it's an uh, uh, honor to be with you all. Um, this week has been uh, a very challenging week for, I think, for China, uh, because we had two uh, separate incidents that are directly correlated. Uh, one is the, uh, the summit for democracy, and the other one was this um, attempt to uh, boycott the uh, Olympics uh, in, in Beijing, the Winter Olympics. Uh, which has uh, turned out to be a flop. 
um, because, um, you know, other than the usual suspects, uh, nobody really joined this this um, diplomatic boycott. But nevertheless, I think that sort of puts uh, China in, uh, in, in sort of an alarmist mode. Uh, China feels that um, the world democracies are ganging up on it, and um, it feels the need to defend itself. Um, and I suspect that many of the activities we've seen uh, in China and outside of China, uh, sort of the, the anti-summit of democracy, um, had to do with China trying to um, make the case that um, what the, the U.S. is trying to portray it in a, in a in a negative light, it's not really the, the case. Um, and there are more than one way of looking at democracy and, and human rights. Now, um, first of all, I would say uh, to China, chill. You know, uh, everything that you see uh, happening now uh, has to do with one word. It's called jealousy. China is successful. Um, China is prosperous. Uh, China is uh, lifting more and more people from poverty. China is um, investing in, in its neighborhood and in other parts of the world. Um, the West is confused. The West is unable to get its act together and speak in one voice. Um, the West is facing many uh, problems that have to do with um, cultural disorientation and political atrophy. And of course, a lot of it is being channeled into uh, this type of conversation about our system is superior to yours, et cetera, and who's writing the rules of the road and everything that we've been hearing all along. So I'd say, you know, when people, uh, when people are going after your values, and it means that that's the only weapon that they have left. And, and one of the things I want to, to point out is that, you know, you want to, have to, you want to ask yourself, do Americans really care about democracy and human rights, or is it only the government? Because you have to separate between America and Americans, okay? Uh, the fact that Washington is doing certain things doesn't mean that this is a sort of a, the highest priority for the American people. Uh, and also, we want to ask, so why is it happening now? I mean, four years of Donald Trump, we barely heard about democracy. We barely heard about human rights. Um, the only thing, by the way, that we heard a lot during the, the Trump administration was religious freedom. And why? Because there are 70 million evangelical Christians in America who are uh, the, the, the base of the Republican Party, and they care about religious freedom. And that's why it was a big issue uh, at that time. Uh, but uh, we didn't hear much about uh, criticism of human rights, and it all sort of began to unravel when um, after the pandemic started and, and uh, Joe Biden came into, into power. Um, I would say uh, this, that overall, I think Americans don't care uh, very much about the state of human rights and democracy around the world. In fact, most of them think that their own democracy doesn't work, um, and that has been shown time and again in various opinion polls that Americans have a very poor uh, image of their own system. Um, so, you know, uh, obviously, <laughs> when you're not happy with your own system, uh, who are you to go and lecture to the rest of the world about uh, how their system is functioning? And, and when we talk about systems, 
I want to point out the one thing, uh, and I think that uh, the opening remarks were spot on. Democracy is not an end. It's a means. It's a form of government. But what, what is the role of government? That's what we need to ask. What is the role of government? The role of government is to give you good life, to give you security, to give you the ability to, to um, uh, walk at night in the street without being afraid of uh, that you are murdered or your, your children are kidnapped and so forth. Um, so the good life, and there are a lot of good things go into the good life, and everybody, every culture has its own definition of what the good life is. But, uh, you know, um, the, the pandemic has um, gave us a very, very interesting uh, opportunity uh, because the, the COVID-19 pandemic is the first time in human history, the first time in human history in which all of humanity, all of the countries of the world are facing the exact same challenge at the exact same time. We've never had something like this. You know, in the past, you had a natural disaster in one part of the world and a few years later, another part of the world. And, and we could see how different countries, different governments, different forms of government are dealing with this. But we never had a, this sort of beauty contest. We never had all of the countries standing on the same stage, uh, being able to demonstrate how they take care of their people. And the pandemic is the first time that we have this opportunity to compare this sort of what I call the beauty contest. And when we look at this beauty contest, we see that uh, uh, democracies have performed horribly, horribly. In fact, more than 80% of the people that died from COVID-19 around the world uh, were living, unfortunately, no longer in democracies. More than 80% of the people that died from COVID, more than 5 million people that already dead, were residents of democratic states. So when it came to the ultimate test of protecting your life, defending you from enemy, doesn't matter if it's a virus or a nuclear bomb, the democracies failed. So to me, when I look at it, I say, what do I want from my government? Only one thing I want from my government. Main thing is protect me, defend me from this, from that. And when this stretch test occurred, the results are not very, um, not very good, unfortunately. And uh, I think there are 194 countries around the world that are looking at all of this and they're saying, okay, uh, what are they talking about democracy? You know, but you know, do we like what we see? And I think that the issue is here uh, that when you try to dictate or install a certain software on a certain culture, on a certain people. Uh, you know, it's like trying to install a, uh, an operating system of a Mac on a, on a PC. It doesn't work, you know. Uh, and we've seen time and again the United States, you know, I still remember George W. Bush saying, oh, we're going to go to Iraq, we're going to bring them the democracy, we're going to liberate them from their... A terrible uh, leadership that we have, and and one million people later uh, dead, um, many many uh, tragedies. You all know the stories, and we've seen it time and again. We've seen it in Libya, we've seen it in in Egypt, we've seen it in many countries where the sort of um, um, imperialistic mindset of we're going to come and show you what's good for you 
when our own system, our own people are not even satisfied with what we have, that brings to one disaster after another. And you know, when I look at China, I look, well, these guys have been around 5,000 years. They've made every single mistake that is possible. There've been so many tragedies. You've been around, you're America, you're barely 250 years. Mo most of this time, you were uh, not even a democracy, you know, because there was still slavery and, and uh, racial discrimination. You are the new kid in the block. Now, who are you to come and lecture to a culture of 5,000 years that have done all the experimentations and, 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 and suffered so much? And you think that you can sort of come with a magic wand and, and, and show them what's good for them? And I just want to leave you with one uh, point. Let's say that just, let's just, uh, uh, in theory, okay, it's not going to happen, but let's just say, uh, let's say that you somehow convince 1.4 billion Chinese that your system is, is better and they should move from the current system to their own, uh, to the, the system that reflects the sort of the Western style democracy. What do you think will happen? What does what is this democracy going to look like? Have you ever seen one American scholar, one um, uh, magazine article, trying to describe what a Chinese system would look like if it was a democracy? Nobody's giving a thought to this. It's sort of like, let's break it and then figure out what to do. And I think it's, it's, it's this intellectual laziness that we see today in Washington that is break, 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 but don't give any thought about what's going to happen after. So you broke Iraq, you broke Afghanistan, you broke Libya, you broke, I can go on and on. But then who's there to pick up the pieces? So, okay, this is theory, it's not going to happen. China is strong. China doesn't need, doesn't need the lecturing. I think... Uh, the, the, the point uh, that I want to leave you with is this. This is all hot air. Chill, relax. Every country, every society will figure out its way based on its culture, based on its, its family values, based on its, its social structure, based on, it, on its economic development. This is uh, the journey that every society needs to go through. And this notion that you can come and install a certain software, it will never work. Now what China needs to do, only one thing, show that your own people are happy. If your own people are happy, if they feel that you're doing a good job, if they see that their, their life is better than their parents and their children will have a better life and a longer life, by the way, then all the rest is meaningless, okay? So actions speak louder than words. And every country in the world will be watching and making its own judgment, not waiting for Washington to tell them uh, <laughs> what is the right answer. Thank you okay. very much. Thank you, Gerluft. Uh, interesting question. You you asked the question, you know, what if China adopted the US-style system? What will happen? Uh, you know, uh, some Chinese would say probably China will be a larger 
อีรักจะใช่เออ let's move on we have Dr Chandra Muzaffar the president of the international movement for a just world uh, an international NGO based in Malaysia uh, which seeks to critique global injustice and to develop an alternative vision of a just and compassionate civilization guided by universal spiritual and moral values. As author and editor for 32 books in English and Malay, uh, many of Dr. Chandra Mazafa's writings have been translated into other languages. Uh, so Dr. Chandra, please. Peace be with you. I'd like to begin by thanking the organizers for this kind invitation. I've been asked to look at small states, Muslim countries, within this context of democracy and a big power competition. Before I focus upon my topic, let me say this, that the global system is in a mess, that international politics is in a state of crisis. That crisis is not caused by what the Western media tells us. It's because Russia is about to gobble up Ukraine or because China may attack Taiwan. That those are not the reasons why the world is in a mess. It is in a mess, and this must be emphasized over and over again, because the United States of America and its allies are determined to perpetuate the existing order which allows them to dominate and to control the planet. In other words, they want to ensure that they remain the hegemonic power in the world, which is a role that they have played with varying degrees of um, success over the last few decades. They want to perpetuate that hegemony. They feel that hegemony is threatened because realities are changing. The power structure is changing because new centers of power are emerging, new relationships are being forged, and the United States is worried that it lose its grip, it lose its dominant position. That is the underlying cause for the global crisis. Now, let me look at small states and uh, Muslim countries, a topic I've been given within this context. I want to be very candid with you. While there have been some successes, small countries, Muslim states have benefited in small ways from the existing order, the order after the Second World War. The fact is that by and large, they have suffered under this system. They have been witnesses to and victims of wars. The Korean War, the Vietnam War, millions dead, hundreds of thousands maimed and injured as a result of these wars, fought in uh, Asia, small countries, 
middling bars. We're also aware that um, there have been attempts to usurp the resources of the small states, what had happened to Iraq, to other countries in West Asia, in North Africa. This is the reality. The reality is that governments have been ousted. Dictators have been installed. Dictators, mind you, installed by the world's leading democracy in order to perpetuate their democracy's interests. That has happened over and over again. From Lebanon to the Congo, to Chile, to uh, Nicaragua, to any number of states. This is the reality. This is what has been happening to small states, to Muslim countries, and so on. We're also aware of the other inequities and injustices, vast gaps between rich and poor. It has become worse over the decades, greater concentration of wealth, greater control over the global financial system, attempts to control strategic routes, everything on behalf of the dominant hegemon and its allies. This is the reality. We cannot say that it has been a happy time for us. We have suffered a great deal. We have paid in terms of lives, paid in terms of our resources. We have paid in terms of uh, not just our future. We have even had to mortgage our heritage, our past. Look at what had happened to uh, Syria, what had happened to Libya in terms of the heritage because they had been conquered at some point or another. This is the reality. Now, I was also asked to look at uh, the attitude towards Muslim countries, and we have to talk invariably about Islamophobia. Islamophobia is actually a continuation of something that has happened for a long while. The fear of Islam is rooted in history for hundreds of years. And the root cause, again, is related to power. The West began to react this way to Islamic civilization from the 9th and 10th centuries onwards because Islam is the only non-Western civilization that has conquered and occupied parts of Europe. It never happened to them before. They have conquered others, but they've never been occupied and conquered by another civilization. So that fear of Islam, an irrational fear, has remained for a long while because the reality is the two civilizations have interacted positively right through history, absorbed from one another. But what is emphasized is this uh, misplaced fear of Islamic civilization. And as a result of that, you have political problems in various parts of the world. Friends, if this is the reality that confronts us, small states, Muslim countries, is there any hope? Now, the rise of China is unique. First time that a power has come up to challenge the existing order without violence and bloodshed. And it is a challenge which is extraordinary for various reasons. It's not just a question of trade, investments. It's not just a question of um, China's emergence 
in terms of um, finance and uh, other aspects of uh, the economy. It is China's rise also as a political power, which is a consequence of these changes that are taking place. But most of all, friends, something which is not emphasized except in some circles, the rise of China is a rise brought about by its mastery of science and technology. As in all times in history, it is one's control over science and technology that makes one a superpower. And China's mastery over science and technology, not just your 5G, not just uh, exploring the other side of the moon, space, technology and all the rest of it, it, it is the totality of China's rise in science and technology. And the West knows that this means that they cannot dominate the world anymore. It's China, science and technology. This is an observation which the Muslim reformer in the 19th century, Sayyid Jamaluddin al-Afghani, made a long time ago, the secret of success of power. As it was in the case of Islam in the past and every civilization, is science and technology. So this is unstoppable, the rise of China. It is irreversible. And this is the reason why countries have begun to feel that there is some breathing space. The rise of China is not something which is just theoretical. It is very concrete. Because if you look at the Belt Road Initiative, it is an attempt to translate China's rise into something that means change, positive change for a lot of other people in other parts of the world. And it's based upon an ancient idea, the Silk Road, which interestingly was a very important combination of forces between Chinese civilization and various Islamic polities. Just one very important aspect of the Silk Road. And this is being reborn. It is something which the Chinese are determined to do to ensure that the Silk Road becomes a reality, both a maritime reality and a land reality, and it's going to change the world. And this has given us hope, all of us. Infrastructure development, changes in our social structure, our ability to link up with others, it's, it's going to be very, very critical for the future. So while we welcome this, let us also remind ourselves, small states, and I would include even China, though it's a big state, China should also remind itself that as these changes take place, let us not commit colossal blunders that will derail us. We must avoid this at all costs. And what would be the greatest blunder? It is to fail in governing our societies well. Let me sort of uh, make couple of points very quickly that I wanted to. Now, if you look at some of the major issues in international politics over the last few decades, the role played by citizens groups, the people, it has been uh, overlooked. To give you one example, the mass mobilization of citizens all over the world against the Iraq war, that was unprecedented. And it was in the interests of the dominant powers to snuff out the impact of what had happened. But what had happened in 2003, 
you know, at one point you had 50 million people all over the world taking part in different sorts of activities connected with the Iraq war. Now it's that sort of mass mobilization, which I think is very important in terms of bringing about changes to the international system. Basically, when we take a position against uh, a hegemonic global system, we're asking for changes to the international system. We're asking for greater multilateralism, for instance, different centers of power. It won't come about easily, and it will not come about through the UN Security Council or through the uh, generosity of the big powers. It has to come from people's groups as one of many avenues. And this is why I think we should understand the value of this sort of mobilization. Take another example, the global movement against apartheid. It was not the governments. The United States and Britain were very slow in responding to this struggle against apartheid at the global level. It came from citizens' groups. And even in the case of the United States of America, it was church groups and other citizens' groups that were in the forefront at the beginning. So what I'm saying is some citizens' groups have a role to play in trying to reshape the international system, but they haven't realized this potential. And uh, let me say this in all frankness, that I don't think uh, the Chinese government understands this at all. The Chinese government and I think Chinese society as a whole does not have uh, an inkling of how citizens' groups can function and how they can mobilize and bring about change because it doesn't happen within post-1949 China. And this is the reason why I think you know, we should try to convey this. If we want to have change in the national system, citizens' groups must also play a role. And I can think of a few other issues where the stances taken by citizens' groups have had some impact. Minimal, but nonetheless, this is the sort of direction in which we should work, apart from other things that we have talked about in the course of the evening and all the other examples we've given. So I would want to make that point about the role of citizens' groups in bringing about changes to the international system. And here we are talking about a hegemonic system and the fear that people have that this hegemonic system will be replaced by another hegemonic system. I do not think so. I do not think that this will happen. But on the other hand, mass participation by citizens' groups, multiple centers of power, and perhaps a very diffused notion of global power and institutions that reflect this diffused nature of power. I think these are some of the contours of the future. And we should be looking at this in order to understand what is happening. Thank you. Yes, let's uh, proceed to the next speaker, Admiral Professor uh, Jayanath uh, Kalambaj. Uh, the Director General of Institute of National Security, Sri Lanka. He is the current uh, Permanent Secretary of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, prior to which he served as uh, additional secretary to the President of Foreign Relations. He is also currently serving in the advisory board of Sea and Coast Maritime Magazine. Uh, so, Professor Kalambach, please. 
Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. I'm talking to you from Hawaii. I just managed to come on time. So today we are talking about this geopolitical approach to human rights, democracy and big power competition. So let me start. You know, there was this democracy summit conducted by USA very recently. 100 countries were invited or rather world leaders were invited. But when you look at the list, some of the countries, the human rights record is really bad. But they were also invited and they were, there are democracies, not democracies, but they were also invited to uh, participate in this summit. If you look at the world, 193 countries, so only 51.8%. So there is a clear division in the world now. 51.8% was invited to this summit and the rest like Sri Lanka, China and many other countries are not invited. Now, Sri Lanka is one of the oldest democracies in Asia. It's a functioning democracy, uh, uh, one of the oldest functioning democracies. And we have conducted free and fair elections certified by uh, election, uh, European monitors and we have a functioning uh, judiciary and there is complete freedom of speech, freedom of press, everything is there, but still we are not considered as a democracy. So what do we do? Now, the, this, this is actually raising a very big question as to who decide what is a democratic country and what is the real criteria for this selection is a problem. Now, uh, when uh, when when someone uh, is deciding, oh, you are democratic, you are not. Actually, it is creating a division. In my opinion, it should be the people of that particular country should decide whether you are a democracy or not. Not from outside. It's, it should be the people. Now, this summit very clearly, unfortunately, has divided the world. What we need is to unify the world, to be one uh, common uh, humanity. But we are trying to divide by various other ways. I think we should not... Uh, uh, divide like this. And also democracy. I mean, democracy is, you know, we all like democratic freedom. We like freedom of speech, freedom of thought, uh, freedom of, uh, uh, I mean, uh, to express ourselves. We all like it. But then there cannot be one size fit all for the whole world. It is basically up to individual countries to select the system of governance, which is befitting your own country. It is not one size fit all. It cannot happen that way. It is the people and the country and the government should decide what is right and what is uh, wrong. And especially if you look at all of Asia, not a single country had been developed uh, through a 100% democratic system. It has developed because there are other systems. So therefore, this democracy is the only answer I don't think we can really agree on. Now, on the big power competition, we know that there is competition for power and influence. Power is, of course, there are three different types of powers, economic, military, and diplomatic. And all these three powers are used by major players in the country, major powers, to coerce, to influence, to pass their opinion on to the others. And maybe even through soft power, right? Like maybe giving aid, like giving a grant. You know, this type of power and influence are there in the world. Now, my argument is world, world should be divided. There are common threats to the world, like pandemic. Right. And like global warming and climate change, extreme weather events, poverty, elevation. These are common 
threats to the humanity. So we need to be really united in fighting that. We, know, we need to be focusing on common prosperity and not mutual destruction. You know, we know that the geopolitical and geostrategic competition is actually destroying the world because it is creating division. We need inclusivity, not exclusive clubs. We need everyone to be inclusive. Then on the human rights, very quickly, you know, by being born as human, we have rights and we all like it. We like to uh, live a free, uh, I mean, exercise our freedom to study, to live in a house, to have a family. We all like that. There cannot be anything away from human rights. But we need to respect human rights. To me, human right is like a flower. Right. First, you have to plant a seed and then the tree has to grow. Tree has to give uh, rise to branches and the branches will give a flower. So human right is like a flower. But before growing the tree, if you say human right, human rights, it won't work. So therefore, I think without development, we cannot really have human rights. And also, when you talk about human rights, there is another very important aspect. To me, right to life is more important than human rights. Right to life. I re-emphasize right to life. We know terrorism is destroying life. Sri Lanka experienced 30 years of a dif difficult war. And China, Xinjiang province and other places experienced terrorism until about 2016. Then terrorism is really destroying the world. They are taking the life, lives away from the people. They are killing people arbitrarily, indiscriminate bombing. So therefore, I think right to life is the bounded duty of any legitimate government, any legitimate country. Because first, you must ensure that the people can live freely and people can live and then only they can uh, safeguard human rights, they can enjoy human rights. But then, unfortunately, in the world today, the victim of terrorism, after a while, become the bad guy and the perpetrators of terrorism become the good guys. So this is actually a problem. Sri Lanka is also experiencing in the United Nations Human Rights Commission. And we are very grateful China is standing by uh, with us. You know, we have to respect the international system. We have to respect the sovereignty and we have to respect the non-interference in the domestic internal matters of another country. And we don't want any other mechanism outside the UN Charter. Right now, what we see is this mechanism, that mechanism. So these are not sanctioned by the UN Charter. The UN Charter respect sovereignty, non-interference. These are the things that we should uphold. We should not allow any other mechanism to uh, take place. And we need to work together. We need to work as one humanity. We need to work as a group of countries in order to achieve a better life, development, and then human rights, then democratic values, all that will come. But first, we must get together and fight these immediate threats that I mentioned earlier are persisting in the world today. So with this, I uh, terminate my talk and um, uh, thank you very much for inviting me to be with you. All the best. This is the end of the first episode on geopolitical approach to the democracy, human rights, and big power competition. Please stay with us for the second part of the conversation for the next time. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy our program. Please do follow and subscribe this channel, The Global Governance Perspective.
You could also follow us on our Twitter and Facebook to write your comments. Look forward to joining us next time.